title of the sermon today is An Anchor for the Soul. Let's read Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. I'll be reading in the English Standard Version. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray this morning. Father God, we come before you this morning, we come humbly, we come recognizing our dependence on you, we come asking for your spirit to work in our hearts, that as we look into your word today, that through your word and through your spirit, you would challenge us, encourage us, that we might hold fast to Jesus. I pray that you would lift him up. Make him look good today, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What happens when something really shakes you? Maybe it's something that happens in your family, a situation that comes up that you are not expecting. Maybe it's a conversation with your coworker. How do you respond? in those situations. We've all likely had days where we weren't sure how we were going to make it through. We can't see the way ahead. Storms are raging around us. Despair sets in, threatens to unravel us. It's hard to keep going. If you've ever been in a situation like that, when you feel like it's hard to keep going, a situation where you feel like it's hard to persevere. I got good news for you this morning. God's unchangeable character anchors our perseverance. That's the main idea of the sermon today. So if you want to write that down, if you're taking notes, God's 
unchangeable character anchors our perseverance. So we need to set some context for our passage today because Hebrews is a long book. There's a lot going on, and we're dropping into the middle of it. We're dropping into chapter 6 and really the end of chapter 6. So we want to set some context so you can see how this passage fits within the argument of the author, and ultimately that's going to be what causes it to land on us in the way that I think is helpful, in the way that the author intended for it to land on the reader. So we don't we say the author because we don't actually know who the author is for the book of Hebrews. There's a lot of speculation on that. Uh, we just don't know. What we do know is that the book of Hebrews is a very detailed argument about the superiority of Jesus Christ. The author wants the audience to know that Jesus is awesome, right? So as the argument unfolds, uh, he's going to lay out several different aspects in order to make that point. The author is writing to Christians who were likely facing opposition that was causing them to want to abandon the gospel, causing them to want to return to the old covenant ways. So coming out of uh, the old covenant, coming out of uh, Judaism and all that comes with that, and the experience that these Christians were facing was making it hard to follow Jesus. So much so that they were ready to bail. James Hamilton writes, This is not an evangelizing letter calling for conversion, but a discipling letter calling for perseverance, growth in holiness, and deeper perception of what God has done in Christ. So the author is calling his readers to persevere and hold fast to Jesus. So flip back with me, if you have your Bible, flip back with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We see how the author starts the argument here in chapter 1, verse 1. So flip back a few pages there. The author of Hebrews starts out this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." So the author begins his argument by elevating Jesus right right at the outset. He begins by calling attention to the glory of Jesus. He is the the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature because he is God himself. And it is through Jesus that God now speaks to us. And so then the author proceeds to set up a series of comparisons, comparing Jesus to uh, all kinds of Old Testament images and people to make the point that Jesus is better than all of those things. So Jesus is better than the angels. 
he's better than Moses, which if you've read the Old Testament, you know that's a really big claim to make. Jesus is better than Aaron, who was the high priest. Jesus is better than Joshua. He's better than the Old Testament sacrifices. He's better than the Old Covenant because as Dwight read in our passage earlier, he's the mediator of a new covenant, which is better than the Old Covenant. As I said, the author wants us to know that Jesus is awesome. (laughs) So when it comes to chapter 4, in the last part of chapter 4, and then in chapter 5, he's getting ready to make the argument that Jesus is the great high priest. He's getting ready to make the argument that Jesus is a better high priest. So flip over to chapter 5, which is a few chapters forward from chapter 1, or if you went back to 6, just go back to 5. Verse 9. So Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So the author's going to move into this argument about Jesus being the better high priest, but there's a problem. So chapter 5, verse 11 begins what is the third warning passage in the book of Hebrews. So spread all throughout the book of Hebrews, there are five warning passages. This one is the third one, and it goes all the way to the end of our text today. So it goes from 5.11 all the way to chapter 6, verse 20. So our text is kind of the end of this warning passage. And this is how it ends, uh, chapter 6, verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner, on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which that picks up right where chapter 5, verse 10 left off. So so if I can kind of like picture this, frame this for you, chapter 5, verse 10, we're going to talk about Jesus as the better high priest. Chapter 7, verse 1, and really chapter 6, verse 20, we're going to talk about Jesus as the better high priest. (laughs) So that's the main argument is being interrupted by this warning passage. So it's like a parenthesis in the argument. And then our passage is at the tail end of that. So we already saw that one of the reasons for the warning is because they were dull of hearing. You need to know this, but you're not really paying attention. So that was chapter 5, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 12, so if we keep reading that, says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. And then the author goes on to explain some more of that and kind of tease out some of that. And then he comes to the crux of the warning in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And I want to read it because... We don't have, it's not our text today. We can't unpack it, but I want to read it because it's really going to inform and, and have our text come to bear on our hearts. So the crux of the warning starts in verse 4 of chapter 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. 
this is pretty serious. <laughs> this is a pretty serious warning, and it's a lot to kind of wrap your mind around, especially if you've never read this passage before. The reason for reading the warning is because how verses 9 through 20 is going to land on us is completely dependent on us hearing what the author has said. So it clues us into why verses 9 through 20 is coming with so much reassurance and so much talk about holding fast. The opposite of persevering is not persevering. Not continuing. Falling away. So if we're going to persevere as Christians... If we're going to keep going, there's another way to say that, our perseverance must be in something that is immovable. Which brings us back to the main idea for the sermon today. So if you didn't get a chance to write it down before, here it is again. God's unchangeable character anchors our perseverance. And I have four encouragements for you today. They all start with keep going. Four encouragements, they're all anchored in the unchangeable character of God. So here they are, I'll give them to you all at once, and then I'll give them to you again as we unpack it as we go through. Encouragement number one, keep going because God is not unjust. Encouragement number two, keep going because God keeps his promises. Encouragement number three, keep going because it is impossible for God to lie. And then encouragement number four, keep going, because Jesus is presently the anchor for your soul. The first three of those emphasize particular characteristics of God that are right in the passage there, just worded the same way. The final encouragement, the fourth one, is like the crescendo of the passage. Because ultimately, the way that we know that God's character is unchangeable is through Jesus and his work on our behalf. So we're going to build to that as we go. Let's get into it here. Encouragement number one, keep going because God is not unjust. Chapter 6, verse 9, into our passage. Though we speak in this way, what way? This harsh warning way that he just said. This pay attention to this way. This harsh warning about those who stop persevering. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Then he goes on in verse 9 and says, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. In other words, I don't think what's true of those who are falling away is true of you. Based on what I see in your life and what I know about God's character. You're still persevering, so don't stop. 
Keep going, is what he's saying. So as you read the book of Hebrews, it's clear that he's writing to Christians. It's clear that he's writing to those who have been saved, those who are secure. This is the only spot in the book where he uses the word beloved to refer to them. It's almost as if the author knows. I need to encourage them, make sure they know I love them, and they need a little extra warmth because I just laid this huge warning on them. So he's making sure they know you are secure. Keep going. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. That's God's character. He's not unjust and the visible fruit in the life of these believers. The way they served other saints or Christians is another way to say that. The way they served other Christians put their love for God on display. The fact that they loved God showed up in the way they cared for and loved other Christians. Only the Spirit of God could produce that kind of fruit in their life. That's why the author says, we feel sure of better things for you. Flip over to Hebrews 10. So a few pages forward to Hebrews 10, uh, verse 32. There's quite a few places we could go in Hebrews or in other parts of the New Testament. But I think Hebrews 10 gives us a little glimpse into maybe what the author was talking about, at least one aspect of this visible fruit. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I think that's some evidence of this kind of loving the other Christians, banding together, partnering together in the affliction that these believers were evidencing in their life. And the author says, God is not unjust as to overlook his work in your life. <laughs> he's like, he's not going to just overlook that. He's working in your life. And there's a double negative there. The author could have just said God is just, but he said God is not unjust. To emphasize it, to, to bring out us so that we pay attention to that, that it's absurd that God would not be just. What is just means what is right. God will not overlook the fruit in their lives, is another way of saying he saved them, he'll keep them. Reminds me of what Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is not unjust. God always does what is right. You and I do not always do what is right. Sometimes we respond harshly to others. Sometimes we don't understand a situation clearly and we respond wrongly 
based on our lack of understanding. I think often of when I do that with my kids, where I jump in to try to address a situation and maybe haven't figured out exactly what all is going on in the situation, and so I end up addressing it incorrectly, and in some cases even sinning against my kids because I maybe say they did something they didn't do or I'm assuming something about them that isn't true. And in those cases, I have to realize I've got to turn from that. I've got to repent of that and, and ask their forgiveness because I acted unjustly. I acted wrongly. We are not always just. Sometimes we are unjust, but God is not unjust. You might be thinking, what about all of the wrong that we see in the world around us? What about all of the things that we see and experience and we see others experience that are not right? Why does God allow those things to happen? Those are all legitimate questions. I don't have the answers for those. Here's what I do know. God is not unjust. You can trust his character. Verse 11, as we continue in the passage, he writes, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, or dull of hearing, if you will, from 5.11, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the author has recognized visible fruit in the lives of these believers. He has recognized a fervor in service. And he's saying apply that same fervor to all of life, to the way you persevere. View those things together because it's in your serving others that you will persevere. That's the way it shows up tangibly in our lives. We keep going. One commentator writes, one of the most important catalysts of spiritual confidence is spiritual fruitfulness. Results don't make us fruitful. Faithfulness to God and his word make us fruitful. God handles results. So how about personally for you? Perhaps you have labored for many years serving in the church and you have not received the appreciation or the recognition that you desire. Is God unjust? Perhaps you have been sharing the gospel with family or friends over and over. And perhaps you've received harsh responses or perhaps no response. Is God unjust? Perhaps you have been feeling like giving up lately because things are not going the way you feel they should go. Is God unjust? Perhaps you've been growing weary of giving of yourself to others. 
What question am I going to ask? God is not unjust. Keep serving others in the church. Keep sharing the gospel even though you get no response. Keep being faithful even when you want to give up. Keep giving of yourself to others. Because it is in those very things that your perseverance plays out. We keep on being faithful because our perseverance is anchored in the unchangeable character of God. Keep going because God is not unjust. That's encouragement number one. Encouragement number two. Keep going because God keeps his promises. We've already started to get into the character of God. So now the author gives an example, an Old Testament example, of God keeping his promises. He gives an example so that his readers will know that God is the kind of God that keeps his promises. He's the oath-making, promise-keeping God. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. God made multiple promises to Abraham in the Old Testament. Right? We see that in multiple different places. The, the particular promise, as it's stated here in verse 14, comes to us, excuse me, comes to us from Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is the account where God commands Abraham to take his son. Isaac, his heir, who he had waited for at least 25 years for God to send, he commands him to take him and uh, put him on an altar and sacrifice him, to kill him. And Abraham obeys, he does this, and as he has the knife in his hand, uh, the voice of God cries out and says, stop, don't kill him, There's there's a ram over here in the bushes, offer the ram instead. So Abraham offers the ram and so we read of this in Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17. You don't need to turn there, but listen to God's response after Abraham's obedience. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring. So here we have an instance where God swears by himself. He swears by his own name. Because there's no greater thing that he could possibly swear by. So it's kind of like the thought behind a courtroom oath or an oath of office. So that you're, you're going to a swearing-in ceremony. Uh, so help me God. Those kinds of words came about because we were, we were declaring our allegiance or our oath. Or we were swearing based on an authority that was higher than us. right? And so, so we appeal to a higher authority. There is no higher authority for God to appeal to. He's it. So he swears by himself because that is the best guarantee. There's no more sure way that he could guarantee that he will do what he says he will do. But the promise is not just for Abraham. Verse 17. So 
when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So not just to Abraham, but to all the heirs of the promise. So Paul is going to write in Galatians 3, and you don't need to turn there, but Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The readers of Hebrews, the audience here, would have been included in the heirs to the promise. Christians are heirs to the promise. Has anyone ever made a promise to you and then didn't keep that promise? God never does that. God never fails to follow through on what he says he will do. I fail to follow through on things I say I will do. You fail to follow through on things you say you will do. God does not. You can trust him. He keeps his promises. And many times, for God's promises to be fulfilled, persevering looks like patiently waiting, like Abraham did for years and years and years before Isaac was given. Keep going, because God keeps his promises. That's encouragement number two. Encouragement number three, keep going, because it is impossible for God to lie. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God cannot lie because he is truth. Lying is contrary to his nature. And as if the promise wasn't enough, he seals it with an oath. So you've got two unchangeable things, God's promise, God's oath. He doesn't do that for Abraham's sake. He does do that for Abraham's sake. He doesn't do that for his sake. He does it for Abraham. He does it for our sake because he knows that we doubt. He knows that we struggle. He knows that we need reassurance. He doesn't need reassurance. He's not, I'll add an oath in so that I, I'll do that. He swears by himself. He makes the promise so that we'll know and so that we'll have the assurance. That little phrase, so that. Two unchangeable things, so that, points to the reason that God gives the promise. The purpose, so that they will hold fast, so that they will persevere, so that they will keep going. Think about someone that you trust, 
Uh, just kind of get that person in your mind. Think about that person in your mind's eye. As you have that person, uh, think about why you trust that person. Think about the characteristics about that person or maybe your relationship or your experience with that person that, that causes you to trust them. Now think about what it would be like if that person lied to you. If that person became untrustworthy. It's hard to trust people, especially when we get burned. Especially when someone we thought we could trust becomes someone who is untrustworthy. At best, it fractures the relationship and requires time and effort and a lot of conversation to rebuild that trust. At worst, it kills a relationship. So if you have a hard time trusting God because of your experience with people, remember that God will never deceive you. It is impossible for God to lie. That's encouragement number three. Keep going, because it is impossible for God to lie. So here's the main idea of the sermon again, as we head into this fourth point. God's unchangeable character anchors our perseverance. But how do we ultimately know that God's character is unchangeable? Key word there is ultimately how do we ultimately know that God is not unjust? How do we ultimately know that God keeps his promises? How do we ultimately know that it is impossible for God to lie? That's encouragement number four. Keep going because Jesus is presently the anchor for your soul. We know God's character is unchangeable because of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. This is the kind of thing that anchors our souls. That's why it's the crescendo of what this passage is working towards. Let's read verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus embodies our hope. Hope in Hebrews is never just a concept, it's never subjective feeling, it is always objective reality. Because it's a person. And that person anchors our souls. We won't deal with the last half of verse 20 today. That having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Because that, that resumes the argument that it's going to take chapter 7 through 10 to, to make that argument. So, so we're not going to, to focus on that today. We're going to focus on the three pictures that the author uses to make this objective hope tangible for us. Three pictures 
an anchor, the tabernacle curtain, and a forerunner. All right, so let's, let's just talk about these, and then we'll draw some application for us. Bethany, by the way, I love hearing Solomon back there, so don't, don't feel bad about that, all right? The anchor signifies security and stability. Not just any anchor, a sure and steadfast anchor. Cranks it up a notch. This is not the kind of anchor that's going to give way at the first sign of a storm. This is the kind of anchor that is immovable, that holds fast, that can anchor your soul. You don't get any more stable than that. The second picture is the tabernacle curtain. All right, and so, so in with this analogy brings in all kinds of Old Testament imagery. Right, and so this this there was a a a veil or a curtain in the tabernacle. There's actually multiple of them, but this particular one is referring to the one that separated uh, the temple, the tabernacle, from the most holy place. And behind that curtain in the most holy place was the presence of God. That's why no one could go in there except for the high priest once a year to make sacrifice for himself and for all the people. And if he didn't do it right, he would die. Because that's how serious God was about his presence. That's how serious God is about his presence. So only the high priest was allowed to enter there, and only one time a year, it was on the Day of Atonement, so you can read Leviticus 16. Uh, Hebrews makes incredible connections with Leviticus, so if you've ever gotten lost in Leviticus, read Hebrews and then read Leviticus with it, and it'll blow your mind, okay? Jesus, remember the argument the author's going to make? Jesus is the better high priest. He makes a sacrifice once for all, and he makes that sacrifice for himself by himself. He is the sacrifice. He went behind the curtain into the most holy place and offered himself. Our scripture reading earlier from, was from Hebrews 9 that Dwight read. So flip over to Hebrews 9. This is a couple of chapters ahead. And further down in the passage, we see verses 24 and 26. If you ever read through the book of Hebrews, you know, like, you can't really stop anywhere. You just, every sentence, you're like, oh, i got to read that one, because it, it's just so packed. So we go to verse 24 of chapter 9. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. So we're not actually talking about the tabernacle itself or an actual curtain, right? Although those were pictures. Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not on his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. A better high priest, because he offered a better sacrifice that only had to be made once, and it was him. And now he's in the presence of God forever, 
Remember in Hebrews 1, we read, after making purifications for sin, he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. His work is done. And he's in God's presence forever. He's gone behind the curtain so that we know we will go there too. Which is the idea of the forerunner, which is the third picture. What does a forerunner even mean? It's basically one who goes ahead to make a way so that others can follow. He enters the presence of God and offers the perfect sacrifice of himself on our behalf. On our behalf, for us, in our place. This is the gospel. This is the good news. 1 Peter 3.18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us into the very presence of God. Christian, hold fast to that hope right there. Because yes, we already have salvation, but we are not yet in the presence of God, but we will be. Because Jesus is already there. He's the proof. You have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of your soul. Friend, if you are not a Christian, you need this soul anchor too. Deep down, you have a longing for the kind of stability that this brings. The Christian life is not freedom from trouble, not by any means. But it is eternal stability in the midst of whatever life can throw at you. What kind of stability are you looking for that's been eluding you? You may not have been able to put your finger on it, but this is it. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's really good news. That's the gospel. Friend, if you're not a Christian, will you, will you turn from your sin today? Will you trust Christ? You can have this soul anchor. That's our only true hope. Christian, what kind of things are threatening your stability? What kind of things have you worried these days? In a room this size with this many people, I have no doubts that there are a lot of answers to that question. For us, Corporately, as a church, it's no secret that our senior pastor is retiring in a few months. And there is much for us to consider with this transition. It brings with it all kinds of feelings and emotions. And Pastor Darren has been here for many, many years and has brought with him a sense of stability. And so one thing that certainly crops up in our minds is what's going to happen in the future? What's going to happen after Pastor Darren leaves. I say a sense of stability because we're only humans, right? 
humans aren't really stable. There's nothing that even guarantees we're here tomorrow. There's nothing that guarantees I make it off this stage today. That's not very stable. Church, our hope is not in the next pastor. Our hope is not in any pastor. No pastor is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. But Jesus is. He is immovable. Only he gives the kind of security that anchors our soul and our perseverance in the here and now. So hold fast to him. So those are the four encouragements from this passage today. We keep going because God is not unjust, because God keeps his promises, because it is impossible for God to lie, and because Jesus is presently the anchor for our souls. Earlier we sang a song called, He Will Hold Me Fast. Our holding fast to Christ is anchored in his holding fast to us. And I want to close with the lyrics to a song, and I'm just going to read them for you. It's called Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. It's by Matt Papa and Matt Boswell. Michael, I might make a future request. So put your pens down. Tuck your phone or your Bible away. Forget about lunch for just a minute. And just, just listen. Christ the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn. In the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on. When temptation claims the battle, and it seems the night has won. Deeper still then goes the anchor. Though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, through the floods of unbelief, hopeless somehow, O oh my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This my ballast of assurance, see his love forever proved. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Christ, the sure of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true, we will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. God's unchangeable character 
anchors our perseverance. So hold fast to that. Hold fast to him.